welcome to the Future of Sport podcast with Lewis Silkin, where we'll be taking a forward look at some of the biggest issues facing the sports business and sports law sectors in years to come, gaining insight from industry experts and learning how innovators of today are likely to shape the world of sport tomorrow. I'm JJ Shaw, and on this maiden episode, I'm joined by none other than Alex Kellum, Head of Sports Business at Lewis Silkin and all-round sports marketing, sponsorship and commercial IP specialist, and Andrew Osborne. Head of Immigration at the firm and a renowned expert on all things relating to player transfers. Thank you both uh, very much for joining the podcast. Thanks, JJ. Great to be here. Thanks, JJ. So the question we will be discussing on today's episode is a rather open one, uh, and that is what are the biggest and most interesting commercial and regulatory issues facing the sports industry over the coming years that listeners should be aware of? We've got about 20 minutes. So Alex, perhaps you could kick us off here. In your opinion, what is the number one factor that you predict will impact your work over the next couple of years? I think it has to be evolving technology. We've already seen how fast things are moving with the likes of blockchain, NFTs, changes in the way we're consuming media. And all of these things are impacting all of the commercial deals that are done in sport. So, yeah, very broadly, that is going to be the biggest impact on our work. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting area. I mean, can you give us any specifics maybe around NFTs or the like of blockchain? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think most people have a fairly decent idea now as to what blockchain is, what NFTs are, but there's still a reasonable amount of confusion. And I think the the lawyers working in-house for sports who are having to get to grips with this really quickly are having to grapple with a lot of new different concepts. Taking a step back and looking at NFTs, the way I see them is they are just an enhanced certificate of authenticity. They are something which enables a digital asset, which can normally be incredibly easily duplicated, to become something that is scarce and rare and therefore has value. Even though some people may say, what is that real value? It's not tangible value in the, in the normal way, but nevertheless, it is value. And that's what's driving this phenomenon. And we're going to see it infiltrate every area of our work. We've already seen it, you know, just on those sort of digital trading card type, pure digital assets. But we're seeing it more and more attached to real um, assets as well. So you buy a pair of unique trainers with an NFT attached to it to show that you own that individual pair that it is the authentic pair and you know we're seeing lots of things like socio so there are simply sort of memberships that are supported by nfts which are exclusive limited in number and therefore enables trading but from a legal point of view i think it's really clear to understand that nft blockchain what have you is just an enabler to do all of these things I think one of the biggest risks is that rights holders may well grant too broad exclusivity in some of these areas. So if you grant somebody or uh, make somebody your exclusive NFT provider, what does that mean? There, There could be so many different applications for NFTs. You don't want to limit yourself in that way. So, yeah, there's all these sorts of things where where lawyers are having to get their head round. No, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting how how, how technology and sport are, are converging. I mean, do, do you see this ever increasing convergence between technology and sport, you know, whether it's through uh, technology such as 5G or, or maybe sort of player tracking technology or the likes of NFTs, as you discussed? Uh, are these good things? Um, and I suppose linked to that is the underlying law and the regulation 
actually developed enough to handle these new technologies and their impact on sport? Okay, so there's quite a lot in that question. But um, overall, I think, yes, these are absolutely good things. Um, It enables new exciting ideas and um, opportunities for fans to enjoy. Take content, for example. Um, The ways in which we are now able to consume sports content is so much more varied. 5G, the speed of the internet, is just making things so much easier to digest wherever you are out and about. And the manner in which sports rights holders can therefore exploit these different rights and these different platforms and channels of communication to their fans also increases. So it's good for the rights holders as well. Probably not so good for the lawyers who've got to jump around and start thinking about, well, hang on, did I grant that type of right to someone and this type of right to somebody else? And how does this all fit together? Um, But from a fan's point of view, it's absolutely a good thing. I mean, particularly on the, the new sorts of content platforms that are emerging, I think it's really interesting to see how micropayments and in-app payment methods um, and payment methods that don't necessarily rely on monetary value but rely on exchange of data all of these things will change the way that we purchase content and although I don't think it's the death of you know your traditional broadcast deal there's definitely a, a place for these within the sports content marketplace. Thanks so much Alex. Uh, Andrew, over to you then. Uh, Given your extensive work in the field of immigration, would I be right in thinking that Brexit and its impact on the movement of people in sport is a major issue? Uh, Yeah, um, I think I can safely say it's sort of the the biggest issue that we've had over the last, what, 40 plus years in terms of uh, impacting the labour market and it particularly impacts sport because, you know, sport is a very international market. You've got um, sort of impacts on uh, tournaments and sort of access to the UK if there are particular sporting events here. And then sort of probably more day-to-day impacts are around um, sort of team sports where you have people who are employed to come and play sport professionally in the UK. I mean, obviously, the biggest example um, of an international workforce is the Premier League. Uh, but it applies, you know, to rugby clubs, it applies to cricket, it applies to any sort of sport where the person will need to actually be in the UK uh, as a sort of practitioner. But yeah, I, th- I think really the, the impacts are going to be felt in football in particular, partly because there's been a sort of really well established pattern of recruitment for clubs in uh, England in particular from Europe, but also obviously it is, you know, into the Scottish League as well. Um, and that is now changed. That is now much more difficult. So those established patterns of recruitment, the established ties are not going to be as useful to clubs going forward. And there's a lot more red tape and a lot more cost involved in that recruitment. And what effect might this have ultimately on the UK sports market and the, and the talent pool it can realistically attract from overseas? Are, are we heading towards a Premier League model where foreign players are going to become a scarcity or, or a luxury even? I think you've got sort of a few different layers. I think for the top clubs, the new rules aren't going to sort of matter that much in the sense that they're always sort of looking at high quality players and the current rules that will now apply to European players as they apply to everybody else are based on, in in very simple terms, are based on quality. So I think in that sense, you know, people recruiting at the highest level, it's not going to really impact. 
what it is going to impact is probably clubs sort of lower down the Premier League and then further down the sort of football chain where they've been able to get uh, sort of good quality players um, at a sort of reasonable cost, perhaps where they're not perhaps as, as expensive as, as local players. And in particular, this is going to impact, I think, the recruitment of young players. Again, there's been a real tradition of um, clubs in England recruiting young talent from across the EU. Uh, particularly, you know, sort of looking at academies in Spain and France and taking sort of the best products from those academies. And that sort of tap of young talent is now going to be sort of turned off. So that, I think, is is a problem um, and is going to change the way that clubs in England uh, can develop players and can recruit players. And just finally, then, in terms of, I suppose, UK sporting tournaments, what effect does this all have on those? And particularly given... You know, I assume it's probably going to be harder for the sponsors and media to access the UK market. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think um, it's certainly not going to make the UK a more attractive place to hold tournaments or to hold sort of big finals. You know, the participants, the teams, whoever is playing or, you know, the athletes who are coming, they will be fine. But there obviously there's a large number of people that, that come sort of around tournaments so there's a lot of media there'll be a lot of sponsors there's a lot of commercial organizations who'll be involved and if it's harder for them to get into the UK then it obviously makes it much uh, sort of less attractive and, and obviously we've uh, I've already sort of personally seen where big sponsors of events are struggling to get people into the UK to sort of do what they need to do and just in the long term it just may proved to be a little bit more sort of problematic uh, for us to have big events here. Alex, back to you then. You know, this is a podcast fundamentally about the future of sport, um, but we can't ignore the fact that we just had the Olympic Games in Tokyo. Um, What happened at the Games, in your opinion, that's going to change things looking forward? I think the games have been an evolution of what's been happening um, really over the last 12 or 18 months where athlete activism has really just come to the fore. And also the, the athlete welfare aspect and that ability for athletes to speak out and say, well, how do we want to run our sports? Is it right that we put athletes under so much pressure, etc.? Going back to the Euros, um, sorry, I know we're not meant to be looking backwards, but Marcus Rashford and um, his profile and with all our athletes taking the knee, you had that aspect of the players really putting themselves out there and saying, no, this is what we believe in. And then likewise, shortly after Wimbledon, we had uh, Naomi Osaka saying, no, I don't want to put myself under the pressure of doing media conferences after uh, every match. And then we saw Simone Biles, who, you know, quite rightly realised that she was struggling to do her twisties and that for the good of the team she had to step down and you know she couldn't get over that in a in an instant so she had to give herself some time she came back on the beam obviously which I think is incredibly admirable um but that was obviously because it was a, a discipline where she didn't have that that problem of twisting so much I was also interested to see um diver Chris Mears who was doing a lot of the punditry for the diving talk about his experience of leaving the sport as an Olympic gold medalist after after Rio and the challenges he faced all of this openness from the athletes is from my perspective a great thing and something that's changing 
the way athletes are viewed, the way brands are looking at athletes, and ultimately making the, the rights holders have to look at themselves and think, what are we doing differently to really reflect and make sure that the athlete experience is a good one? Because I think, you know, we set sport out as a real pinnacle and a lot of people aspire to it. But it's such a shame if in the reality that isn't what's really happening on the surface. Obviously, there's lots of people having different experiences, but it will be great if the lessons that we can take from the last games, the last 18 months, and really move forward over the next period so every athlete has a great experience and they aren't penalised one way or another if, if actually they have a bad day. So, yeah, I think in terms of looking forward, from a commercial point of view, brands will be looking at athletes in a different light and maybe asking them to do different things. And I think brands should adjust to ensure that what they're demanding of their athletes is something that isn't putting too much stress on them. Um, and, and the rights holders are inevitably going to be having to think about what demands do we put on our, our athletes? Is it right that media appearances, et cetera, are compulsory? Um, there's lot, lots there to think about. I don't know that I have all the answers, though. Yeah, lots to unpick. Um, and then in terms of the tension, really, that, that some argue exists between the likes of Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter. So that is the rule which prevents all athletes from taking part in any demonstration or political, religious or racial propaganda, quote unquote. Um, and statements from the likes of the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee from way back before the Games in around December 2020, that there should be no punishment policy for protests and demonstrations that are aimed at promoting human rights, social justice initiatives and advancing the human rights mission of the Olympic movements. You know, there's a tension there between uh, these sort of statements from sort of major Olympic governing bodies and the Olympic Charter itself. We perhaps didn't see it play out so much in Tokyo, but do you think we are on a collision course uh, in years to come between these two things? So, yeah, if you'd asked me just before the Games, I would have thought that there would have been an awful lot more protesting than we actually saw during the Games. In fact, I I think I'm only aware of one that got any significant attention, which was, um, I think her name's Raven Saunders, the American shot putter, who interestingly did a an X sign in support of diversity. That is actually so much in the spirit of the IOC's charter anyway then maybe they didn't view it as a protest, but I believe they haven't actually taken any uh, any further action as far as I'm aware. But there was very little. It shows that actually the athletes perhaps do respect that celebration that the Games is and they don't want any distraction. I definitely think this is an issue that's going to continue to be raised and sports rights holders are going to have to decide what their position is on it. It is just a really difficult area, but I think clear direction from the rights holders is what athletes will be looking for, but in dialogue with them. I think that's probably the most important thing, making sure that rights holders are talking to the athletes when they're making these decisions. Yes, indeed. Andrew, perhaps you could give us a final thought on one more core issue you think is worth mentioning as a key issue or trend that you've witnessed this year that the listeners should be aware of. Yeah, so I think the, 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 the sort of the European Super League and the... Uh, sort of speed with which it, it came about and the speed with which it potentially fell away was very interesting. But I think it um, it sort of signaled that there is a fundamental problem uh, with the sort of financial management of football at particularly at the highest sort of level. Um, I think you got the sense that there was a real desire by the big clubs to sort of do away with the jeopardy of relegation 
and to uh, sort of model, I suppose, uh, US sports where there, you know, there isn't that concept. And so the value of the sports sporting organizations remains much more consistent. And obviously, in terms of financial planning, uh, you can always guarantee a certain level of income. And I think that's that was the icing on the cake for Premier League clubs, who obviously have a very large TV deal that they can rely on. But I think for clubs in other jurisdictions, um, it's much more difficult financially. So Italy, and in particular Spain, where um, there's probably been a trend to spend significant amounts of money on players uh, when the revenues that even the biggest clubs, you know, Barcelona and Real Madrid are generating are not enough to be able to support that kind of expenditure. So I think uh, the Super League was interesting. Um, I am pretty sure it hasn't gone away. Uh, So I think it'll be interesting to see what uh, clubs come up with in terms of trying to secure uh, additional revenue really to to support them uh, sort of and maintain their sort of preeminent positions in in European club football uh, on a worldwide sort of basis. I mean, in terms of securing that additional revenue, if the ESL is not the answer, what is? Um, You know, you've obviously in recent days, we've had La Liga essentially tell Barcelona that they can't re-sign Messi. Uh, Looks like Lionel Messi will be most likely going to to Paris or at least another European giant at the time of recording. And Barcelona still needs to offload a lot of players to balance the books. You know, if the European Super League is not a viable option for these clubs, how else do they go about it? I think, um, again, sort of looking at American sport, there is no no relegation, but there are a couple of kind of key concepts that we don't have, uh, sort of in football in particular. Um, And we don't have a sort of draft system where talent is allocated to weaker teams to try and kind of even up uh, the competition. And we also don't have generally a salary cap where clubs are limited in terms of what they can spend on players. And I think um, player wages is one issue, but transfer fees are another that sort of fall outside of a lot of regulation. And I think that it's generating revenue, but it's also making sure that costs are kept uh, proportionate to the revenue. And I think for some clubs that hasn't been the case. And I think that's why they're now in sort of financial difficulty. So I'd say... Um, generating more revenue is uh, on the scale required is hard, but I suspect that an, an easier but not less painful way of doing it would be to try and restrict actual expenditure some way. Alex, any final thoughts from you? Has has this issue affected the work that you know the work that you do in the sponsorship space at all, um, and the kind of commercial and legal protections you you look to insert into those sorts of agreements? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the European Super League issue has flagged how important it is to build contingencies into sponsorship agreements and ensure that they're watertight whether you're acting for a club or for a sponsoring brand you need to anticipate um, these sorts of moves and from a club's perspective make sure you've got that agility to retain a sponsor and try and keep them happy even if you fundamentally change the nature of what you're offering by shifting into a different league um, and likewise, from a, um, a sponsor's perspective, you need to be thinking ahead and making sure that your rights are watertight so that if there is a shift into a league where you're not necessarily as happy with the uh, the club being, 
you have get out provisions or if you're incredibly happy that they're there that you are able to maintain your rights and uh, at the same price that you're originally paying so yeah it, it means that you're having to be a lot more forward thinking and second guessing what might happen when you're drafting um, sponsorship agreements. That's brilliant and I think with that that's probably about all we have time for on this episode. Uh, so I'd like to thank both of our guests for giving up their valuable time to share their views on some of the most pressing issues impacting sport in 2021. Uh, we will no doubt return with another episode in due course. But for now, you can follow all of our latest insights, articles and legal updates on the Lewis Silkin Sports blog. Head to sportsinsights.lewissilkin.net for that. Um, until next time, however, thank you for listening.